2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation has peaked. That's the view of economist David Rosenberg, who says price pressures will soon start to ease. This is nothing like the 1970s. And deflation will win the war, how he says to position your portfolio. Plus, checking in on Choice Hotels, the parent company of Comfort, Sleep In, and Econo Lodge, delivering on earnings, adding to the company's 35% gain this year. We speak with a CEO who will reveal a surprising winner of the work from home trend. And a ride, a burger, and a workout. We've got the action, the story, and the trade ahead of three key earnings tonight Uber, Shake Shack, and Peloton. But first, we start with the markets today. Dom Chu is here with the numbers, and we're getting that. Are settling in from the Fed yesterday, Don?
3: Kind of like what you get when you get a ride after a burger and before a, you know, exactly settling into everything. The markets are settling in right now at record high levels. With the S and P 500, it gets the gold star. It hit a record today. So did the Nasdaq Composite. The Dow is not far away, but it's still down in the session right now. To give you an idea of the trading range we've seen so far today, the S and P at the lows of the session, just after the opening bell, up two handles, two points. Up 26 points at the highs, so tilting a little bit towards the middle of that trading range in the middle of the session today. Right now, 15,910, the last trade for the Nasdaq Composite, up two-thirds of 1%, the pacer, if you will, today. One of the big reasons why the Nasdaq Composite is outperforming today is the computer chip stocks, with two especially in focus today. Qualcomm, after that blockbuster earnings report and upbeat guidance from that company on the semiconductor side yesterday after the closing bell, has those shares up 13 14%. NVIDIA, also up 11% right now. It's the seventh biggest company in the S&P 500, roughly two times the size of Procter & Gamble, just to give you an idea of market cap in terms of comparison. NVIDIA and Qualcomm both getting some positive analyst commentary as well today. Some analysts think that NVIDIA could be a real beneficiary if the metaverse really starts to take off here. And the Semiconductors ETF, both of these stocks, by the way, hit record high levels today. So watch those semis. And then the stock of the day, the worst performing in the S&P 500, or at least it was earlier this morning. It's kind of battling it out with another casino operator right now. Moderna shares down 19 percent, a massive move lower. This is after a disappointing earnings and revenue report on a quarterly basis. It also lowered its outlook for its vaccine sales, and that has some investors worried. And they've been worried for a while. Kelly, just to give you an idea, back in August, it hit a record high. Since then, we were down roughly 44 percent. From those intraday record highs that we saw back in August so Moderna shares, a key focus, always a popular ticker search on our website, CNBC.com. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, and seen as a
2: bellwether, really, for the sort of whole COVID vaccine story. Don, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Now, stocks generally may be hitting new highs again, but it's tougher these days for income investors. In fact, the S&P 500's dividend yield is sitting near historic lows. It's about 1.3%. My next guest says he's still finding attractive names with a higher payout. Joining me now is Dan Genter. He's the CEO and chief investment officer of RNC Genter Capital Management. Dan, welcome to you. So, you know, let's start with just kind of very, very basically where you see dividend yield and how important is this still for investors?
4: Well, it's it's usually important and it's become increasingly important, Kelly, as obviously the interest rates have gone down. I mean, you're looking at a bellwether 10-year treasury at 1.5%. You know, a big part of this population, all the baby boomers, are either preparing for retirement or they're retired. And they need income they need cash flow and that's been declining and and whereas a uh, dividend like early in my career dividends were kind of an also ran oh it pays a two and a half percent dividend that's nice uh but now it's a major source of income and company managements are realizing that so they're seeing they can add shareholder value not only through stock buybacks but they can do it by in, by increasing dividends and people are hunting for that and they'll in many cases depending on how the div- how high the dividend is they'll buy the stock just for that. So yes. I think it's a trend that's going to continue.
2: So here's a, a follow-up question. I have, I have a lot of dividend questions these days, given everything that's been going on here. Do you have people who would literally buy, let's say, a 5 6% dividend yielding stock, even if they think the price is going down?
4: Well, they're, they're not going to buy it if they think the price is going down, but they, they will definitely buy it if they think the price is going to be stable. Because sure. uh, the, the reality is, if you look at a lot of these large-cap companies that have been paying dividends for a quarter of a century consistently, you know, the, the prices tend to be fairly stable or at least inch up slowly. So if you look at an investor and say, well, look, I can get 6% in dividend. It still has preferential tax treatment and a maximum of 20%, most people 15 And look, three years down the road, if the, if the stock has done nothing, if it's just at the same price, oh well, hey, I got my, my 6%. It's pretty good. So So, all you have to do is say, okay, I feel over a three- to five-year cycle, it's not going to go down. And that's a safe bet with a lot of companies.
2: Let me ask you one more question. I really appreciate all of this. It's about a stock you're not uh, necessarily coming to talk about today, which is AT&T. You know, there's a stock with a very high dividend yield. Let's see where it is as of today. 8.4 8.4 percent, basically. Right. I'm sure there are people salivating for that kind of yield, and yet the shares are at about an 11-year low, depending on kind of where they wiggle each day. Would that be a good candidate for a dividend portfolio or not?
4: Well, I think what you have to realize is, as I mentioned earlier, you, you don't want to buy companies that you think, number one, the share price may be going down, or, frankly, that the, that the reason the dividend yield is so high is that the price has gone down. So the dividend just stayed the same, the price went down, so the current yield is now elevated. But that's, a, that's an environment to where, you know, you may have a very high probability they're going to cut the dividend. And then that, you know, that can be a death bell to a stock that's like that if it's not priced in. So it's, you don't, don't want to just chase the dividend yield. You have to look at the level of the yield, the sustainability of the yield, and make sure those companies are viable and earnings are going up, and cash flows there to support the payout ratio.
2: Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll leave the fact that it's not one of your choices. So people can read into that what what they will at this point. <laughs> right. So let's talk about who you would recommend: CVS, Phillips Sixty Six, Dow Chemical. Uh, talk about why those three in particular jump out to you.
4: Well, I think CVS is an interesting play just because it's a company that's going through a transition that is, I think, is going to be successful. And the bottom line to that is they are no longer just a, a pharmacy. I mean, they are going to be an integrated health care provider, you know, mainly providing, you know, non, non-critical Elements where you don't have to go to the emergency room, but you're, you're feeling bad, and, and they're doing that very successfully. You know, they, the, the dividend is strong. It's about a market dividend, a little higher at 2.1. We think that that's stable. At a 12 PE on what we see as earnings, we just think it's a, it's a good overall return. You know, there's, there's others that are higher dividend plays, like Phillips 66 and Dow. Uh, there, too, we think we see significant value with very low PEs, in the 7x range, but they're paying you 4, 4.7% while you wait, and they're increasing dividends 8 to 9% a year. So you're not only getting 5% while you wait, taxed at no more than 20%, they're giving you a 8, 9% raise every year. So very few things you can get high income, and then you're going to get a raise that's probably bigger than what most people were getting every year in their paycheck.
2: Well, and my final question kind of goes back to uh, Philip 66 and some of the names like that. You know, there seems to be kind of this ideological battle that takes place in the boardroom when you have a high proportion of your shareholder base that's there for the dividend, because companies often have to face a choice with that capital. Do they reinvest it right. for the future um, or do they pay it out? You know, And I know that for many, they can do a little bit of both, obviously. But you know, at a time of energy transition, we're looking at companies like Exxon and Chevron and wondering, do they just pay the cash back out to shareholders or do they try to invest it for the future? And I wonder if, again, if the dividend base represents to some extent a challenge that companies have to overcome because they say, you know, if we – change and have to make these big investments, we're going to completely lose a portion of the share base that's here just for the payout.
4: Yeah, look, it's an ongoing battle and and boards have been making that decision every quarter for, you know, 150 years in this country. So it's nothing that's going to be new. and, And clearly it's a liability. I mean, it's a big, big number. It's a big payout when you look at free cash flow. And then when you're looking at it as even a percentage of earnings and the payout ratio. So you've got to be cautious to make sure that you're going to be able to, you know, to keep paying that. And they're going to have to have the cash flow to do it. I mean, the companies like we're mentioning, they've been doing this for a long time. They don't do it willy nilly. Uh, They have very sophisticated budgeting processes. They also know that a, a cut in dividend you know, it's something that's very devastating to the stock. So they, they do it very cautiously in putting that forth to make sure they can still meet their CapEx plans and still meet that cash flow. But right now, it's an I don't want to say it's easy, but it's an easier time. Hmm. I mean, earnings are up 60 percent this year. Free cash flows are soaring. And you're in a situation to where cash reserves on average in the, for public companies is 28 percent. It's at historical highs. Wow. So they, they're making the money. They've had the cash flow. They have the cash reserve as a backup if they need it. So they see, look, we can pay this out and people are going to gravitate to our, our shares. And it's a, it's a tremendous way to create shareholder value. There's a big demand for it in the marketplace by investors. And, uh, and companies are going to hear that bell.
2: Fascinating. Dan, thanks for letting us probe into this a little bit. Really good to have you on today. My pleasure. Dan Genter with RNC Genter Capital Management. All right, let's move along to Square, which is set to report earnings after the bell today, with the stock only up about 13 percent this year after a monster 2020. It's still outperforming rivals like Visa, MasterCard and PayPal. And the board just approved its twenty nine billion dollar acquisition of Afterpay. Here with more on what to expect now, Lisa Ellis is part your partner and senior equity analyst at Moffitt Nathanson. Lisa, it's great to see you again. What are you going to be listening for?
5: Uh, probably the top number we're watching for this quarter is the gross profit in the cash app business. That's Square's digital bank that had a huge run during the pandemic. There is some concern that as we're lapping the second half of this year, stimulus payments are rolling out, that those numbers might be a little bit light. Uh, we're looking for just under $600 million in gross profit there. They have they've had about 40 million monthly active users. We're looking for those numbers to at a minimum stay stable sequentially, um, maybe even uptick a little bit sequentially. But that's definitely the you know, the, the 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 nervousness that's been putting a little bit of pressure on the stock in the in the recent weeks. So when you say gross profit, you mean literally just in the cash app? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Square's got some funky accounting with the way the Bitcoin flows through their income statement. So the best like kind of top line measure to look at for them is gross profit. Uh, That's sort of their net revenue, so to speak. Um, So that's usually the metrics that they certainly focus on and we focus on as well. And that number for um, the, the cash app business is, you know, we're looking for something just under 600 million. Um, um, but we, you know, that's the that's the number, you know, of particular focus for investors sure. um, yeah, this quarter. Mm-hmm. I just think it's quite a statement that cash app is the number one focus. I mean, this
2: product is how old, maybe a year and a half, couple of years. It, it can't be much older than that. And it had this huge benefit during the pandemic, right, because of stimulus payments and all the rest of it.
5: That's you're absolutely right. This is um, a piece of the business. The product has been in there for a few years, but it really surfaced during the pandemic um, huge adoption when bank branches were closed. People were trying to figure out how they could collect their, their stimulus checks, how they could, you know, and it is one of these modern digital banks, very much like a Chime or a SoFi, but with the brand of Square that's, you know, very uh, um, appealing to consumers. And uh, interestingly, um, two-thirds of the valuation of Square now is, is attached to that business because it's had just extraordinary growth and actually also has very high incremental margins. So a lot of the cash cash... cash flow of Square is coming through the cash app. Uh, And, you know, and folks are kind of waiting to see, is this a state, you know, a a permanent trend where we're going to see consumers steadily shifting to more use of these digital banks and moving away from the traditional brick and mortar banks? Um, Or was it sort of a flash in the pan during the pandemic? And, you know, these next couple of quarters for cash app will be a good indicator of that. And I should note, you do have a buy rating on
2: the company with, I believe, a three hundred and forty dollar price target um, so, again, there's also focus on the seller business, you know, the point-of-sale systems, on the after pay acquisition, obviously, the buy-now-pay-later space. But, you know, when two-thirds of its value is coming from the cash app, that's pretty extraordinary. They just announced yesterday they're trying to roll out the app for, I believe, teens to use with their parents' permission. Why is this necessary, and how much could it possibly engender some blowback based on what's happened with other social media platforms targeting the younger uh, generation lately?
5: Yeah, they're going after, you know, I think uh, – There's one, you know, one of those extraordinary measures is how stable people's relationships with their primary checking institution is. So it's like whatever bank account you sign up with first, Mm. you tend to have for decades. So Square is trying to figure out ways to get um, cash app uh, adopted already at the teen level, much, le- much like, you know, 13, 14 year old kids can get a bank account that's kind of a sub account under their parents account. Um, uh, but you're right, as a mobile app and also as an app that has some more social elements to it, like the person to person payments, they always have to walk this line uh, with privacy. And, you know, so they're trying to figure out ways to make sure that the right level of parental oversight and you know, regulatory uh, compliance and stuff is is baked in. Um, you know, so they're trying to navigate that. But the appeal of bringing that, you know, the Gen Z group in as sure. they mature um, is huge. As you say that, I'm realizing I kept my same bank even though it changed
2: owners about four times until I got married, <laughs> and switching it over was a nightmare. So you're right; it is very sticky. Um, again, so gross profit in the Cash App, a key thing to watch tonight, Lisa. Thanks so much for the preview. We appreciate it. Terrific. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis with Moffat Nathanson today. Still ahead, shares of Denim Maker Contour brands higher after beating earnings estimates and raising their full year forecast. Up next, we'll speak with the owner of Leon Wrangler about the casual clothing boom and their expectations for the holidays. Plus, if you're sitting at home using Uber Eats to deliver your Shake Shack before you work it off on your Peloton, this is the earnings exchange for you. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade for those three names reporting after the bell. Stay with us.
0: This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny! Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org/moneytools.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back. Contour Brands is benefiting from the denim boom, beating earnings estimates, raising its outlook, and shares are on pace for their fourth straight week of gains now and their best five-day stretch since April. The company also recently boosted its dividend. We were just talking about dividends by 15 percent. Yields just over 3 percent right now. Joining me is Courtney Reagan, along with the CEO of Contour Brands, Scott Baxter. Court?
7: Thank you very much, Kelly. And Scott, thank you for being here with us. Kelly gave us a nice setup. Clearly, you put up a very nice quarter, increased your outlook going forward for the balance of the year. We know that when Americans emerged from the pandemic, we changed the way that we looked at our closets and perhaps even a more casualized workplace going forward. Would you say that these results are still riding that wave? And, and all investors want to know, how long can that really continue? How many new pairs of denim do we need?
8: Well, thanks for having me on, Courtney and Kelly. I appreciate it. And and it's more than a wave. It really is a change, a fundamental change in how people are dressing across the globe. People are casualizing. So that's going to go on for a really long time because we've seen that change in all the major markets across the world. And in addition to that, for our company, why it really benefits us is we're more than just a denim company. I'm wearing one of our outdoor vests today and one of our outdoor shirts that are in our outdoor line. And we have a pretty big workwear line that we talked about today in our call that's done really well. And, you know, we're adding t-shirts to the mix because they match up so well with our bottom cord denim. But, you know, we think it's something that's going to be here for a really long time. And, And staying on the forefront of design is helping us too.
7: Got it. You know, Obviously, you sell in a variety of different ways, both direct to the consumer and through wholesale partners. And there's been a lot of discussion over the years about wholesale, if that still makes sense now that direct-to-consumer is so much easier. But in your results, you got some really strong wholesale reporting results. What segment, though, is most important? Because, of course, you sell anywhere from discount all the way to some higher-end options.
8: Yeah, so we have, you know, some some are really important relative to the brand health at the higher end, you know, and then some are really important for, you know, our core consumer. And that would be in the mass and the mid-tier you know we do an exceptional business in the western business too so that's really important to us and farm and fleet stores are really important to us too so those are the key segments for us and we're seeing that people are going back to stores you know they're getting out and they're shopping and, and going back to stores and it really it's a complement of your direct-to-consumer piece and also you know your uh wholesale component and We think we're bringing those two together very nicely, and it's working really well for us. And and we we talk a lot, Courtney, about winning with winners. So the Walmarts, you know, um, Kohl's, Amazon, Target, uh, you know, Farm and Fleet stores. So those are the winners in the category, and we've partnered with them very well
7: absolutely on your call you did have a lot of discussion about the supply chain and gained some pretty specific numbers saying less than three percent of your supply comes from china much of it that does is sold in china less than one percent for vietnam a third is from the western hemisphere still though you did have some cost pressures there was some air freight going on but putting it all together is it fair to say that if consumers are looking for your brands that they'll be available as planned this holiday season and for prices that aren't necessarily going to increase?
8: Yeah, I think that you know, our product is out there, it's available in all those channels that I discussed and, and one of the reasons why is that we made a decision when we spun off two and a half years ago, and that was to own a large portion of our manufacturing. So Courtney, we own almost 40% of our own manufacturing, which is unheard of in our industry. And it's in Mexico and Honduras. And we don't have to deal with the ports with that 40%. We truck that product right across the line into our distribution centers here in the United States. And it works really, really well for us. So having that big component has been really strategically important during the pandemic and will be going forward. But we're pleased with our product, we're pleased with where it's at, we're pleased with the distribution, and we think we're in really good shape for the holiday season. We think the uh, consumer will be really pleased.
7: Very quickly before we let you go here, I know when you were part of VF Corp, that company was always looking for acquisitions. Right now you have about three core denim brands. Are you looking to add another denim maker to your portfolio? Yeah,
8: we're looking to add something. It doesn't have to be denim, but it'll be in the apparel space. And we want to stay core and we want to stay close to home. But part of our optionality, because we're creating a billion dollars of cash in the next three years, you know, you saw that we increased our dividend 15%. We also had our first ever stock buyback program. We're also now putting thoughts together around how M&A looks for our company going forward. Part of our options.
7: Great. Scott Baxter, CEO, chairman and president of Contour Brands. Kelly, I'm going to send it back to you.
2: Love getting such a clear answer on uh, looking for uh, other companies to add to their portfolio. Scott and Courtney, thank you both very much today. Still ahead, inflation, no more. We'll speak with one economist who says we're past peak inflation and that deflation will actually win out. He'll explain and tell you how to position. Plus, shares of Choice Hotels are trading at an all-time high and they are up more than threefold from their pandemic low. The company continues to exceed 2019 levels on the key metric of revenue per available room and now they're investing in leisure travel brands. We'll talk to CEO Pat, Pat Patius about the role that's playing in his growth strategy right after this.
1: Welcome back,
2: everybody. Here's a quick check on markets. Dow's down 100 points now. We're near the session lows. We are down 157. That said, the S&P is still up 11 points today, and the Nasdaq is strong again, adding two-thirds of 1%. It is definitely the leader. Here are some of the individual movers we're watching this hour. Zillow again. This time trying to stage a bit of a rebound after three straight days of declines. It's down more than 30 percent since Monday and on pace for its worst week ever after missing estimates and closing its home flipping business. Z today is adding about three and a half percent. Elsewhere, shares of Etsy are hitting an all time high, even though they issued weak guidance. The company posted an earnings beat and an 18 percent jump in sales from a year ago, helped in part by its recent acquisitions like Depop. Etsy might also be able to sidestep supply chain troubles this holiday season because it has thousands of sellers making things from home home. Its shares are on pace for their best day since April 2020. They're up almost 15 percent. And now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue.
6: Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The House of Representatives is getting ready to debate and vote on President Biden's two big spending plans. The White House now estimates new taxes on corporations and the rich will raise $2.1 billion over the next 10 years. That is about $200 billion more than earlier estimates. The voting could begin a bit later today. ESPN is laying out allegations of misogyny and racism against Phoenix Suns majority owner, Robert Sarver. ESPN quoted another owner as saying Sarver's statements are embarrassing. Sarver's legal team has denied he ever used racist language. The Phoenix Suns and the NBA have not immediately responded to CNBC's requests for comment. And in New Jersey, the state's longest serving Senate president suffering a humiliating political defeat at the hands of a newcomer, Democrat Steve Sweeney has lost re-election to truck driver Edward Durr, who spent as little as $153 on his campaign. Durr entered the race after being denied a concealed carry permit, despite having a clean record. On the news tonight, Ford goes retro with its latest concept car for an EV pickup. Get the details tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You're up to date, Cal. I'll send it back I to you. I love that truck.
2: I saw that. Uh, it's very, very cool. It's very cool thank you. We'll see you soon. Sue Herrera. Coming up in earnings exchange, options imply an 8% upside move in Uber on its report tonight. But with expectations high after Lyft's beat, will that play out? Plus, there's 11% short interest in Shake Shack. Does that make it a target for a short squeeze or will history repeat itself as Shack has dropped after each of the past four quarters? And Peloton down more than 40% this year. Will subscriber trends hit more resistance? The numbers and the trade for each of these reports is next. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange with a twist today because none of these companies are actually going to report earnings or at least they're not expected to. So it's results exchange and we'll give you the action, the story and the trade on three key reports on deck. Today's lineup. Uber, Shake Shack, and Peloton. Let's kick things off with Uber, where analysts are expecting a $0.33 cent loss per share for their third quarter on $4.4 billion in sales. The shares are down 11% this year, lagging both the broader averages and its biggest rival, Lyft. Its gross bookings did more than double last quarter as travel demand rebounds, but a driver shortage has been a headwind all year long, restaurant reopenings also eating into food delivery. Let's bring in our own dear Bosa for the story here, along with Kim Forrest, the chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners, and she will give us the trade. Welcome to both of you. Deirdre, Lyft is setting kind of a high bar here.
9: Yeah, it certainly is. And it often does this because Uber always reports just a few days later, if not a day later. So Lyft's good results. That has already sort of followed through in Uber's share price. It has gained on the back, so stakes are certainly high. Investors are going to be looking for a lot of the same things. You mentioned driver shortage. Lyft was able to increase the drivers on its platform by 45% year over year. Can Uber do the same? And, of course, that has really important implications for profitability or rather narrowing losses. Their preferred metric, of course, adjusted EBITDA. It's not really profitability, but it is their metric. Will Uber have made headwind here? Can they roll back some of the incentives that they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on. Another thing to watch is active users, right? How many people are actually getting back on the platform, whether that be for food delivery or ride sharing? Also, I mentioned those adjusted EBITDA losses. Look out for a Didi write down because Didi, the Chinese ride sharing company, really helped boost results last quarter. But we know the story here that this stock has really just been a dog, given all the pressures in China. So how will that have come through in
2: Uber stake this quarter. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I always forget about that aspect of its exposure as well. Kim, again, this did uh, rise on Lyft's results. So what would you do with the stock today?
10: Well, if I owned it, I'd get while the getting's good. Because, um, as Deidre points out, there's not a whole lot of good news that might come out. Part of my worry is there's only so many people in America that are willing to be drivers. and it feels like Lyft has been winning the driver, you know race, that they've been uh, be- giving them better compensation or you know whatever they need to to get those drivers. So I'm a little bit worried about that. And also looking forward, which is really what we are looking for out of earnings reports or loss reports, whatever, or, you know, whatever they are, (laughs) Um, what we're really looking for is clues about what's going to happen in the next quarter and maybe the next year. And we are entering holiday season here where people do like to enjoy some adult beverages and then take a ride home. But how many people are going to be having holiday parties this year? I don't know. So certainly it'll be better than last year. But is it going to be better than 2019? I seriously doubt that. And maybe that's the bar people are looking at. So sure. I would take um, Uber and get the heck out of it.
2: <laughs> Dear, just a final word on that. And, and you, actually, to your point, you wonder why Uber might not want to report ahead of Lyft in the future, just to kind of set you know, the tone itself instead of kind of having to adjust for it one way or the other. But are, is Lyft doing a better job at getting drivers?
6: We
9: will certainly find out, Um, and that really is the key question. It's interesting what Kim said because the street is actually way more bullish on Uber than they are Lyft. Both companies really have underperformed the market since their IPOs, and it's always this question. They have such intense competition, but remember, Uber also faces competition from the delivery side from DoorDash, so that could also weigh on its results
2: or could potentially be a bright spot. Yeah, Dash has been a a strong performer, uh, actually, of late Deirdre, thank you. We'll see you soon. Deirdre Bosa with a preview of Uber tonight. Let's move along to Shake Shack. Analysts are expecting a loss there of six cents a share on $197 million in revenue when they report Q3 tonight. Unlike most of its peers, shares are down 8% this year as headwinds persist. It doesn't offer drive through yet. It has the rising cost of beef and other supplies cutting into profit margins. But could it be in line for a reopening boost? Let's bring in Kate Rogers for the story here. Kate, what are you watching?
11: Hey, Kelly, so we'll be looking at same source sales metrics. Those are supposed to increase by just under 28%. The company's CEO, Randy Grudy, has said that they want to be everywhere, right? So we'll be looking at both urban and suburban shack performance. Last quarter, we saw the suburbs kind of come back a, qu- a bit quicker than their urban-based shacks. Uh, we'll also be seeing if consumers are returning for dine-in. That's something that Shake Shack does rely on, although it has been diversifying with a more heavy emphasis on digital. And as you mentioned, both labor and commodities inflation will be really important. We've seen some some of its peers like McDonald's and Chipotle most recently in the quarters that they reported say that they're raising prices and they're not yet losing consumers. So I'll be interested to hear what Shake Shack has to say on that front. But as you mentioned, it's really underperforming uh, a lot of its peers in this space. It's the only fast food or QSR that's down about 9% year to date. And we're seeing other companies up double digits this year. So definitely a different story there for Shaq.
2: Kim, I can't imagine, you know, I, I, I feel like I kind of know the investments that you like. I can't imagine that Shake Shack would fit the bill. But how would you think about it?
10: No. Well, I mean, I think of these, all three of these actually as trading stocks. These are not things that you get comfortable with in your portfolio. They go up, they go down. And this is more of a you know let's own it for a solid 15-20 minutes I'm kidding but you know like it's a short term anyhow um, yeah I'm not like super charged up about this but you did point out that there's a fair amount of short interest and if they have any good results at all that could make this go up quickly so if you're holding it I'd take a chance and see if that short squeeze helps you out and And maybe get out then
2: that's a great point. Uh, Kate, we also saw another downgrade, I think, from MKM yesterday, 83 from 103. Interesting to see them do that before the results. Why not just kind of wait a day or two?
11: I think we're starting to find out, as I mentioned earlier, who can kind of handle this environment and who can't. So maybe some you know, negative outlook there from that firm. But we'll have to see after the Bell Kelly. Again, companies that are able to raise prices and hang on to consumers, that's really key in this environment because we don't know how long it's going to last. Right.
2: Exactly. It's been longer than we all hoped. Kate, thank you so much. Our Kate Rogers today. And finally, Peloton is out with its first quarter results tonight. The street forecasting a loss of $1.07 per share on nearly $810 million in sales. The stay-at-home darling has gotten hit this year with gyms reopening, its treadmill safety controversy. They've lowered prices for the original bike. They've relaunched treadmills. And they've increased marketing spend to draw in new subscribers. Let's bring in Christina Parts and Christina, we'll see if any of those move the needle, I guess. Um, in, th- in a way, I wonder if this earnings, is that telling or if it's more just about them already trying to pull these levers for future growth into next year?
12: Well, it could be telling because we are concerned about the margins and they've dropped the prices on not only uh, their bike, they dropped the price by at least 400 bucks. So now it's only going to cost you 1500 bucks and $39 a month to get the Peloton bike. But then they also relaunched their tread after an unfortunate incident. And that treadmill is also a little bit cheaper. So given that these products are cheaper, will they be able to maintain the number of subscribers and offset any potential losses going forward? Uh, the company did want about uh, the gross expected margin, or I should say the gross profit margin falling by 200 basis points year over year. The other major concern, too, and this was from Wedbush, they looked at the social media engagement, and they're finding that less people are talking about Peloton, less people are engaging. Uh, Followers are falling uh, on Twitter as well as Instagram. So is this concerning? Are people going back to the gyms now? Are they uh, going and moving to other fitness apps? The positive, though, is that if we look at Q4 their last quarter, they did see an increase in subscribers by 114 percent compared to the year prior. So that's a pretty strong number. It beat what the street was expecting. Let's see if they can keep that momentum going, especially into the critical
2: holiday season. Sure. And the shares, Kim, down almost 3 percent today. Have they priced in the bad news?
10: I don't think so. Um, the company is telling you something whenever it's reducing prices. It's saying that people aren't buying their products. And I think that is the biggest news that you should take away from this, not just the price of the, the, you know, whatever the hard good is, the treadmill or the bike, but also their service is cheaper. And to me, anytime you have like a, a premier brand putting itself on sale, it only accelerates the ride downwards. So... I would get off the Peloton. I would drop out of the back of the Peloton.
2: Um, final follow-up, Kim, because you are such a tech person, isn't the whole narrative in tech to constantly see you lower and lower hardware prices and that's a good thing?
10: It is, but um, you know, tell that to Apple.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Touche. That phone's not getting cheaper, nor are its services. I will right, we'll leave it there. Thank you guys so much today. Kim Forrest with our trades. Christina Parts and Nevelis watching Peloton tonight. Up next, does the market have it all wrong on inflation? One strategist says in his 35 years in the business, he's, quote, never seen such a widespread consensus convinced it's smarter than those dumb central bankers. He tells us what's got him convinced. Inflation is still transitory. Next. Welcome back, everybody. The markets are taking yesterday's taper announcement pretty much in stride, with the average is still on pace for a positive week. But as the Fed ramps up its inflation rhetoric, not everyone is buying it. My next guest says the current environment is nothing like the 1970s, and deflation will win out if history has anything to say about it. Joining me now is David Rosenberg, founder of Rosenberg Research. David, it's great to have you here. And I'd actually like to start with your portfolio positioning recommendations Uh, to see how much difference there really is between somebody with your point of view on this and somebody who might be very concerned about inflation. What do you think investors should do?
13: Well, you know, based on on my view, uh, I I think that uh, when the long bond uh, gets to or above 2%, uh, I think you want to be adding duration uh, to your bond portfolio. Uh, I think that um, closed-end muni funds look uh, good to me as well. Uh, and in the stock market, look, I, I think that you know, we've had a obviously a huge supply shock. Uh, and uh, the demand earlier was sharply boosted by two massive rounds of fiscal stimulus in January and then in March, uh, which really boosted demand, exacerbated the gap between supply and demand with the constraints. The constraints, by and large, are still here, Kelly. But what's happening is that the demand side is starting to wane. In fact, I, I don't think many people even realize that real final sales in the third quarter was fractionally negative. Oh. Uh, so I think demand is going to play catch down now uh, to what's happening on the supply side. Inflation is going to dissipate. I think that you know these Fed futures contracts and the swaps curve that are pricing in uh, two rate hikes next year, uh, I would want to buy those. That will take the opposite side of the inflation and rates bet. And because uh, I think the economy is going to disappoint. Uh, I'm not talking about a recession, but I think that growth is going to disappoint the consensus. You want to be in those sectors that uh, are impervious to an economic slowdown, especially considering that not much, if anything, is going to happen on the fiscal side next year. So what does that mean? It means healthcare, It means staples. It means utilities uh, being a bond proxy. Uh, And I'd say that my overall view, again, is against consensus. I think that a Deficiency of growth is going to mean that growth stocks given the scarcity is going to be where you want to be. So I'm more in the growth over value camp because value really needs uh, accelerating growth and accelerating inflation. And uh, I don't think next year. You're going to be getting either one of those. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm, I want to joke that you should have, you know, linked up with Kathy Wood and launched some ETFs with her a couple years ago, because when she talks about deflation, when you talk about it, I hear very, very similar points of view and kind of similar portfolio recommendations as well. But I wanted you to I'm glad you explained that. And thank you, because I think, you know, I want people to understand you might see the economy very similar to the inflation NISTAS do you know, both of you are describing demand outstripping supply. You just think that demand will slow and others don't, you know, um, and you mentioned real final sales, but nominal GDP is so strong. You know, these 8 percent numbers, we didn't used to see anything like that during the past cycle. So what's your response when people say, you know, yeah, but there's still trillions, you know, in kind of dry powder that can be spent here. There's really strong nominal GDP growth. And we, we just didn't experience that in the past.
13: Well, look for a quarter or two. You can argue that uh, we had strong nominal growth. Last quarter, uh, real GDP growth came in well below expectations. Kelly, it was just right. a couple of months ago that the consensus for the third quarter real GDP was seven percent. Came in at two. You know, you you put on the inflation. Yeah, you get nominal GDP doing what it's been doing. Um, but as I said before, right? Uh, you know, firstly, nobody can really define what is what transitory. To me, just means this is not a permanent feature. Of the landscape and nobody really knows uh, how long the global supply chains are going to thaw out. Um, But the one thing that I do know is you cannot forecast inflation with one curve. You can't just bellyache about supply constraints and not focus on demand and what exacerbated the inflation of the past several months uh, was the fact that we not only had the supply constraints, we reopened the economy earlier than expected uh, and at the same time we had two massive fiscal boosts which are now in the rearview mirror. Now, people talk about $2 trillion of, "quotes" excess savings, but excess relative to what? And I'm frankly surprised that economists would talk about excess savings, because when you go to economic school, uh, excess savings is really where are savings benchmarked against desired levels. Does anybody know what the desired levels are? You can't say, well, we're $2 trillion of of incremental cash balances – And we don't know. You can call it dry powder, but do we know if that will ever really go into the economy? For all we know, it's going to to go into the markets. And so, you know, the New York Fed has done the painstaking work time after time on the impact of cash transfers to the household sector on spending. And, Kelly, uh, only 30 percent of the money from cash transfers from the government goes into the real economy, and Mm -hmm. that's already happened. So the assumption is that this is dry powder future spending, and I'm going to say, well, uh, the historical evidence says that's just not the
2: case. Really well described, uh, David. Again, thank you for joining us today to talk about that, but also, again, kind of the rubber hitting the road and where you think people should be positioned. It's great to have you on. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. David Rosenberg with Rosenberg Research. Up next, shares of Costco are climbing today after reporting huge comp sales. In his Investing Club newsletter this morning, Jim Cramer calls it his favorite retailer and might add it's mine, too. You can sign up for that by pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on the screen or heading to cnbc.com slash investing club. We're back in a moment. Still ahead, shares of Choice Hotels. Hired today after the company posted stronger than expected earnings. The stock is up more than 54 percent over the past year as travel resumes. We're going to talk to the CEO about all of that and the upcoming holiday season right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Choice Hotels are hitting a record high today as positive guidance affirmed a rebound in leisure travel. The company is saying they're seeing the benefits of broader work from home trends, too. Travelers are extending their days into the, quote, shoulder days of the weekend. And as the U.S. plans to open its borders on Monday to vaccinated international travelers, they say the holiday travel season is shaping up to be pretty strong. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Pat Pat Patius, the CEO of Choice Hotels. Welcome back, Pat. It's great to see you.
1: Great to be here.
2: Each of those trends is pretty interesting. Let's start with leisure travel. You guys have a lot more exposure to that than business travel. Would you say it's fully recovered or is there still room to run?
1: Well, there's definitely room to run. You know, I think if you dial back the clock to Memorial Day of this past year, every single holiday weekend, we have really been surprised with the outperformance that we've seen. Um, And that's continued here into the fourth quarter. So as more children are now getting vaccinated, as you mentioned, the international borders are opening. You know, we have a significant number of snowbirds that uh, we missed out on last year because the land border between the U.S. and Canada was effectively closed. So those snowbirds travel, they travel by car, And they travel to our hotels in Arizona, Florida and other other locations. So there's a lot of uh, additional uh, room to grow on the leisure front as we look into the next uh, two quarters. And
2: how are you preparing for Monday when we could see the return of international travelers with possibly quite a vengeance?
1: Well, we've been pushing for that as an industry, as you know, um, and we're really pleased the administration has sort of now opened the, uh, both the air corridors and now the land corridors into, uh, into the U.S. So our hotels are ready. Um, you know, our uh, our industry is uh, has been pushing for this for quite some time. So uh, we'll be excited to welcome back our international travelers um, and all the people who uh, support them, all the tourist, uh, tourism industry workers who support them as well. All of those end up in hotel stays for our industry. And we're really pleased uh, that that's starting to happen. Happen.
2: I'd have to imagine you're hit by labor issues, whether it's, uh, do we call it the worker shortage that you might be experiencing? I don't know how your vacancies maybe compare with other parts of the industry uh, wage pressures and that kind of thing as well. Um, and vaccination issues, you guys fall under the vaccine mandate?
1: Well, on the labor shortage, that's been our biggest challenge. You know, in the last two months, I've been out at regional meetings with our franchisees. I've probably met with over 700 of them. They represent about half of our hotel portfolio, about 3,000 hotels. They're telling me their biggest challenge was labor. They are having to pay more uh, to get housekeepers, to get front desk personnel, uh, and to get uh, breakfast attendants. Um, you know, in our in our part of the segment, limited service, um, it's not as large of an impact. You know, the average Comfort Inn probably has about 25 employees. Um, so we're not as impacted as some of the larger big box hotels are. Um, And how our owners have been adapting is they've relied on us uh, to provide them with new technology. We're now using something called housekeeping upon request, which allows guests to opt out of housekeeping. That saves on the environment and it helps our owners save on costs. And we've seen a really high adoption rate on that front. And we've also provided our franchisees with a new tool to help them reprice their uh, rooms uh, multiple times a day. The volatility in what we're seeing in, in return to travel is really um, challenging when you're trying to forecast and set your pricing. And so this new tool is really a step function change for our owners, and it's allowing them to adapt to those changes in the marketplace, particularly since we're now in a much more inflationary environment.
2: And quick final question. I actually wanted to ask what you're seeing in terms of work from home. Is it really strong? Because I know it was affecting, for instance, uh, stays at your extended state properties.
1: It is. And, uh, you know, we do see that as a potential because I think it's not just work from home, it's work from anywhere. So you can work from a hotel room. We saw a lot of that business uh, during the pandemic. We're still seeing it now that the pandemic is uh, is subsiding somewhat. So we do think that's a long-term trend and we think it's going to allow Americans to travel more during different days of the week and different months of the year.
2: Work from anywhere, work from choice hotels. Pat, thanks for joining us today. Great to check in with you. Hope to see you again soon.
1: Thanks, Kelly.
2: Pat Patious' choice hits an all-time high. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Shannon!